This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Lisa Slominski. Lisa is a curator and writer based in London. She specializes in the history of what is often referred to as self-taught or outsider art. She's active in self-taught and outsider art terminological debates and their shifting positions in the larger art world. She advocates for neurodiverse artists in the current art discourse. And so for all these reasons, we're proud to publish her new book, Nonconformers, A New History of Self-Taught Artists. Nonconformers responds to a growing interest in the work of artists outside the mainstream cultural establishment by offering a nuanced approach to the makers themselves, to their work, and to the history of how this has all been understood and codified by the art world from the earliest, early 20th century to today. The book features essays by contributors Michael Bonesteel, Sophia Cosmodopoulos, Tom DiMaria, Joe Farber-Nandez, Cheryl Finley, Catherine Gentleson, Philip March Jones, Sarah Lombardi, and John Maisels. And it also includes new interviews with contemporary artists Mamadou Cissé, William Scott, and George Widener. Lisa, welcome and thank you and congratulations on this new book. Ah, thank you so much for having me and you know, thank you for Yale for publishing um, a work that is so important to me. So Nonconformers is positioned as a kind of alternative history of self-taught. How are you hoping to reframe these artists? Well, it's a big one. Um, you know, I'm hoping to do quite a few things with the book while also recognizing that it's a very broad book and it also kind of ping pongs between this, am I acknowledging it's a genre or not a genre in terms of whether you want to call them self-taught artists or what is often referred to as outsider art. So first and foremost, you know, I'm hoping to uh, present these artists uh, to a contemporary art audience. So an audience that might know some of the artists, might not know others, and also may or may not kind of understand the history of uh, artists that are considered self-taught. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of the genre, uh, you know, it's almost immediately almost problematic because I also recognize that I myself am creating a category for these artists by giving it a subtitle, um, a new history of self-taught artists. However, what I go into with the book and through the title Nonconformers is I'm trying to describe that these artists that have been categorically placed together have very little in common um, and that and therefore are actually each extremely unique. Um, and in a way, I almost hope that this is the last uh, history, art history book or art book that sort of contains them together. Um, and then... I guess through the presentation, the sort of reframing, I'm trying to do it through a few ways. <clears throat> One is through presenting uh, this sort of 20th century history of where how we got to where we are, which includes previous genres, the rise of the term outsider art, and then also looking into the future, um, especially um, with the final three chapters in the book, we look at the genre of all of these artists from art brute to outsider art to self-taught 
oftentimes it's been a genre that's really been organized by others and the art artist's voice or maker's voice hasn't been very present. Um, so that's why the three interviews with living artists is such an important part of the book. Um, and then I guess in terms of specifically what I'm looking to reframe, a lot of genre of the genre, a lot of characteristics that are lumped together include characteristics of isolation or a raw aesthetic, um, a lack of awareness. Um, so what I'm trying to do is reproduce, reproduce these artists in a new light, first acknowledging how each of them may defy these characteristics one way or another. You know, you look at Henry Darger, who may have been reclusive, but his references to literature and contemporaneous culture is extremely present throughout his artwork. Um, to artists often that are self-taught are considered to be unaware of their position as an artist or of art world standings. But then I introduce uh, an essay about Lee Godey, who was very aware that she was an artist and she would position herself on the steps of the Art Institute of Chicago, selling her paintings and even being aware of if an art student wanted to buy one, she would charge $5. But if a curator from the Art Institute wanted to buy one, you know, she would sell them for $50. Um, so, you know, each, each artist in their own way defies this kind of large fence of categor categorization um, that they think, or like I said, sort of the raw aesthetic is also defied. In terms of the history of the categories, outsider and self-taught art being, you know, referring to a genre, being categories that were defined by tastemakers and gatekeepers to some extent. Um, can you talk about the historical importance of the roles that were played by the French artist Jean Dubuffet and the British art historian Roger Cardinal? Sure. Uh, two very, you know, important uh, figures in terms of, you know, cult both cultivating the genre, which is now considered outsider art or self-taught artists, but also um, in their own ways really did uh, act as advocates for their art, for, you know, for the artists. Um, Jean Dubuffet, um, you know, he was already a pretty established French, French painter in the 1940s. Um, when he, in 1945, traveled to Switzerland, interested in this idea. In 1922, there was the publication of what was <clears throat> um, Artistry of the Mentally Ill, which was a book of works by psychiatric paintings uh, that was published. And Dubuffet had seen this, so he was really intrigued through this notion of um, some of this sort of creative work that was coming out of um, psychiatric institutions. So. Um, in 1945, he traveled to Switzerland to visit some of these uh, institutions and some of these collections that were starting to be gathered by um, doctors. And he just thought it was such an amazing new way of considering, uh, you know, who can be an artist and where creativity can come from. And he got he started collecting work and he also started working with, you know, like minded colleagues and other artists, the surrealists, Andre Breton and other surrealists were also getting quite interested in uh, both work from psychiatric institutions. And then surrealists were also looking at, you know, other other work of mediumistic or spiritualist circles. Um, and they put on um, under the guise of art brute, which is the translation of, you know, raw art. 
um, their first exhibition in 1947. Um, and from there, it just really, really grew. They would do um, publications and he kept collecting and they wrote a manifesto and grew into larger exhibitions. And um, there are some problematic, if you're looking at it through a historical lens of, you know, some of the language or some of the things Dubuffet did do, but it was very progressive at the time. So he was one of the ones where he did really appreciate the work aesthetically. And if you look at um, certain works by Jean Dubuffet, you can actually see that he really borrowed uh, stylistically from some of the artists. They definitely influenced his his own practice. Um, so although he really appreciated aesthetically what they were doing, he did sort of set forth this precedent of qualifying an artist because of their positioning, you know, in the sense mm -hmm. of he juxtapositioned them against the academic uh, art world, which, you know, he he did speak about negatively. You know, I think he referred to it at one point as a, as a pampered racehorse, you know, so he was elevating the voice of these artists, but it was in a very specific juxtaposition of it is different to outside it, outside art. It is different to the academic art world. It is qualified because it is coming from someone who is doing it innately and it has a raw aesthetic as opposed to, I guess, what we're kind of get, growing into in the 21st century in the more sense of it's, you know, it's a contemporary art maker. We need more diverse, more diverse voices and perspectives in the art world. So it may come from somebody who is either not academically trained or may come from, um, you know, the, the less academic or um, traditional path, so to speak. Um, what he also did was he did introduce this um, kind of European status of art group being very linked to um, artwork that was done by people with mental health issues. Um, and that's where I'll sort of, I guess, sort of roll into Roger Cardinal, if that works. Yeah. Um, well, and I'll just say real quick um, about Jean Dubuffet. Um, one of the amazing legacies he left behind was through his collecting, um, which is now housed uh, in Lausanne at the Collection Dell Art Brut. And he just really hones in this notion of like how, what an important role, this is with art across the board, um, but what an important role collectors can play in terms of like actually archiving a work. You know, yeah. I'm sure, you know, hospitals, uh, psychiatric institutions, a lot of them were not going to hold on to this material. So through his collecting and other doctors uh, certainly did this as well. Um, but, you know, that, you know, in turn gave us an archive, you know, that certainly fed into the book um, and provides, you know, an opportunity for all of us to kind of, you know, learn about and experience the work today. Um so Roger Cardinal, um, he was actually studying uh, surrealism or working on a book on surrealism. And he also traveled then to Paris um, in 1967, which I'm not sure if I mentioned it, that the Art Brut movement or the Fourier and the Compagnie de Art Brut, these exhibitions that Dubuffet was doing, it was also in Paris. So that was sort of the center for him. Um, so when Cardinal went to Paris in 1967, uh, he was actually able to visit uh, Dubuffet's collection and he was, you know, extremely interested and excited about this type of work. Um, and he pitched to write a book for basically introducing the notion and artist of Art Brut to the English speaking language. So that's sort of where 
his sort of interest started and he was developing the book. And within the book, he did start introducing, you know, non-European artists into the book, um, including British artist Scotty Wilson, um, Simon Rodia from America. And what was what's what I always find quite interesting is um, he actually did not make the t he did not choose the title Outsider Art. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, for the impact that it's had, uh, he wanted the title. What was his idea? He wanted the title Art for the Artless, um, mm. which the publishers didn't go for. Uh, and then they recommended Outsider Art, which if I'm remembering John Maisel's article correctly, uh, he only gave it about a seven out of 10, but that was sort of the, <laughs> okay, let's, let's settle on this, which, you know, I'm sure happens, you know, a lot in, in, you know, the book world. Um, so that book was published and weirdly, um, it was very, had very slow reception in the beginning, um, and went, uh, rather unnoticed in terms of like press in the UK or anything like that. And then in 1979, uh, he put together an exhibition with uh, Victor Musgrave uh, at the Hayward Gallery, um, which is a, a very important big public institution here in London, um, called Outsiders, an art without precedent or tradition. And what's very important about that and Roger Cardinal's book is this sort of starts to show where the merging of what was happening in America starts to be introduced to um, and merged with this term outsider art and with the art brute movement, you know? So looking at the Hayward exhibition as sort of, um, I guess, an emblem for that process uh, and for Roger Cardinal's book um, and his book as well, you have the art classic art brute artists um, coming into play. You're introducing a few more mediumistic artists, British artist Madge Gill was in the exhibition, but then you're also seeing some American artists coming into play. Henry Darger, who fits pretty, you can see sort of that connection to Art Brute. Um, however, self-taught artist Joseph Yoakum, who was Chicago-based, was in the exhibition. So it starts to bring in this history of self-taught artists in America that came up through modern primitives and um, and folk art and African-Americans of the South um, working in kind of communal or faith-based practices. And so you really sort of can start to see the very hint of that happening in 1979 with this exhibition, um, which then, uh, you know, over the decades has just grown and grown and grown. Um, you know, his term outsider art uh, has become an art fair. It's used kind of globally to mean a lot of times anything that is self-taught or art brute or potentially even now sometimes it's referred to if a contemporary artist has an intellectual disability you know it really has become so outstretched which I guess mm -hmm. kind of a catch-on one of the things that I kind of actively kind of discuss and uh and trying to address in the book in the sense that it might just be time to sort of start letting these artists stand on stand on their own which uh I use the history of uh, modern primitive movements in MoMA and the Black Folk Art Exhibition, as well as what we just discussed in terms of outsider art and art brute to sort of reframe the artists a little bit, um, explaining why and how they were kind of connected to these genres, but then how we can also sort of start to introduce them into 
20th century history alongside, um, you know, the, the modernists and the abstract expressionisms and then into today, just allowing everybody to just sort of be, you know, a contemporary artist, you know, which is happening. Uh, Lynn Cook's Outliers exhibition from 2018 is certainly, you know, a great example of seeing this sort of change happening. Yeah. So would you say that, that um, you know, in order for there to be this increasing acceptance for the idea of outsider art as problematic as we understand that to be, it needed both kind of the imprimatur of the art world, the arbiters, the, you know, the art historians and the curators at, at major museums, and also a kind of uptake by art consumers. I mean, you know, the art world wasn't going to be able to insist on this as valid art if, if there wasn't broad interest among people who are interested in art, right? Sure. I mean, I guess that's where it's, it's very interesting because it's sort of, you know, outsider art as a genre um, very strongly does have its collectors, uh, you know, does have its sort of market, marketability. Um, you know, I think otherwise, you know, Christie's wouldn't head up a sale that is the outsider art fair and, you know, the outsider art fair, which has been going on since 1993, wouldn't be going on. But then I guess exactly in terms of curators and institutions, both ones that like embrace and operate or consider themselves operating, you know, within outsider art and those that don't, it's, it's interesting to wonder where and how this play is going to happen. One of the things I sort of question in the book is I'm still trying to get my head around if whether, you know, people that are embracing this sort of outsiderism, this counterculture thing, um, is there hope that an artist remains only within that remit of outsider art? Or are they hoping that it will, you know, jump categories uh, and not be considered that at all? Or can there be an equal juxtaposition? I mean, I know um, Tom DiMaria, who is, uh, who was, has been a longtime director at Creative Growth, uh, which is a studio for artists uh, with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I know he discusses in the book, you know, his push and pull where, you know, they don't embrace the term outsider art, but they do position themselves within the outsider art fair because, you know, there are collectors and there is great interest for their artists. And it does ultimately, you know, raise the artist's profile, even if they don't consider their, themselves, you know, outsider artists. Um, and then similarly, I do think, you know, for those kind of institution and curators coming to understand uh, this history of artists that were or are considered outsider artists or self-taught, I think there is an interest in, you know, bringing them more into the history and more into curated exhibitions. We're seeing it with the Venice Biennale that is or was opening three of the artists, um, Minnie Evans, Nikki de St. Fall, and Sister Gertrude Morgan are part of the large Venice Biennale exhibition and certainly it's not prefaced as them being self-taught or that's not the, you know, the concept of the overall show. Um, right. And I always think with an artist like Judith Scott, she is, she's been a great artist that has straddled both um, being considered self-taught or being sort of 
sometimes considered an emblematic artist, artist historically of outsider art, while also being contemporary. You know, her work is collected by MoMA, but it's also in the collection of Del Art Brut, you know, and is one more marketable than the other? I'm, I don't know. Mm. Well, let's talk a little more about exhibitions. You mentioned Lynn Cook's recent exhibition and also the Modern Primitives exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art from the early 40s. I'll also throw out there William Edmondson's even earlier 1937 solo show at MoMA um, and Black Folk Art in America at the Corcoran Gallery in the early 1980s. Can you talk a little bit just sort of about the the progression of of these things? I mean, now spanning 80, no, well, more than that, almost a century of, of exhibitions that we could talk about in this context. Sure. Um, it also gives an opportunity to sort of, I guess, talk about the American side of things a little bit. Um, yeah, so in America, in, I guess, sort of the 20s and 30s, this notion of folk was sort of starting to establish itself, but it was very much based in where if you think about Europe and its interest in the art from people in psychiatric institutions, the notion of like very innate individual creativity, the notion of folk was really growing out of like uh, communal practice and tradition and not so much about individuality. Um, uh, Alfred Barr Jr. was the first director of MoMA, and he was interested uh, in kind of non-academically trained artists and movements that were feeding into modernism, which was happening at the time. So he introduced this term um, known as modern primitives. Um, and it was his interest in how self-taught artists were linked to modernism that kind of helped kind of propel this. And yeah, the, the first introduction of this term was actually in 1937, which was with um, the exhibition by William Edmondson, who, on top of um, also being self-taught, that would be that was the first um, exhibition of an African American artist um, ever at MoMA. You know, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, but then it also kind of introduces this teeter, I guess, between obviously what was at the time an extremely progressive decision by MoMA, um, but then also where you can kind of see where this notion of being self-taught could still be um, restrictive. Um, and obviously, first and foremost, if you look at his um, sculptor sculptures in relation to modernism and in relation to the direct carving movement, um, I mean, his work is just absolutely incredible. Um, he does this merging of religion and experience and history, almost making his visual, this visual culture from, you know, like his time and place. Um, but with MoMA, um, you can see that they were kind of introducing him through a specific lens. You know, in the press release, they mentioned things along the lines of, you know, he's probably never seen a sculpture in, you know, in his life where again, just reaffirming what nonconformists is interested in doing and sort of um, going against any of these characteristics. Um, you know, he, his town in Tennessee and Nashville, they had a Parthenon replica. Um, he used to, he initially was carving tombstones. So, you know, he would have been to a lot of cemeteries, which would have had all sorts of sculptural forms. He mm -hmm. also used to work on the railroad. So he probably would have been in Union Station that would have had some sculptures, you know, so there's just, you know, they also mentioned in the press release that he had, you know, very little 
uh, education and that he was illiterate and they incorporated quotes um, kind of executed in Southern dialect. Um, hmm. So, but on top of that as well, this is just a, a side note, there are research also suggests potentially that William Edmondson himself, who was quite playful, may have realized the context of his quote and he might have even almost played it up a little bit. Um, but nonetheless, um, it shows that, and this will feed into the Black Folk Art Exhibition in America, that for white audiences and specifically to white artists, that it may have been somehow more palatable to introduce an African-American artist that was self-taught instead of academically trained. Mm. Um, if, that, if that makes any sense in right. the way that it would just be less... It, it, it kept them separate on an, on, an, on an additional level if they could just sort of kind of consider them like folksy and self-taught. Right. If that was the reason that they were being exhibited and it, yes, sort of side, sidelining race in a way, despite the fact that it in fact highlights the, the racial difference. Exactly. And then for potentially, let's say for a male white artist not to feel, I guess, almost potentially threatened, I suppose, by an academically trained African-American artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so the exhibition opened, um, and what was interesting is it was fairly well received. Um, and his, one of his works, uh, Mary and Martha went on to be exhibited the following year in Paris, but William Edmondson's, um, sort of institutional career sort of settled back down. Um, and he didn't actually receive much further fame in his life. Mm. Um, and was actually buried uh, in an unmarked grave um, in his town, you know, which kind of one of the things I discuss in the book is that sometimes I think these circumstances of being related to or always ring fenced as self-taught or something along those lines, like in a respectful way to look at personal circumstance and how that might have played a larger role um, mm-hmm. is important. And I think for William Edmondson, you know, the fact that he was an African-American African-American in the Jim Crow South, you know, that was also part of his identity and something he was not in the position to transcend. And then, but what's interesting, so in the 1980s was the Black Folk Art Exhibition, which uh, ended up being sort of the start, the revival of William Edmondson's work. So following that in 1982 was the Black Folk Art Exhibition uh, which opened at the Corcoran Gallery, um, curated by uh, Jane Livingstone and John Beardsley. And it it kind of had that same push and pull. It was an incredible exhibition, you know, bringing to the forefront many, many important African-American artists, including William Edmondson, Bill Trailer, Sister Gertrude Morgan, um, who today are really gaining traction and really being seen for the criticality and merit of their work. But the feedback from the exhibition um, sort of discussed those same topics of, you know, are what is what is the context of this work? You know, there's questions about is it supposed to be presented almost as artifact or is it supposed mm-hmm. to be recognized as art? Um, by putting the precursor of folk, does that make it again sort of more appealing to a white audience? But then in an interesting way, what it also does to the definition of folk is it sort of pulls it from that original 
vibe, I guess, from the 1930s in terms of it being connected to um, tradition and communal practice and not having individuality to it, to linking it to the artists in the exhibition who all had very varied practices um, and very uh, unique aesthetics and, and yeah, individ individual approaches to their work. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> this, this tension that, you know, everything that you've talked about so far um, in, in one way or another kind of uh, is underpinned by this tension between, as you've said, on the one hand, publishing a book that features profiles of dozens of artists from the past hundred plus years under the title and subtitle Nonconformers, a new history of self-taught artists and acknowledging aspects of these artists' biographies that make them candidates for such a grouping. And on the other hand, being careful as you and all of the book's contributors are not to center those aspects of their biographies and aiming, in fact, away from the categories self-taught and outsider. So I guess I'll, I'd like to wrap up by asking whether, when it comes down to it, you think that that tension is simply unavoidable or, you know, how do you see it resolving as the field moves forward? <sighs> Tricky question. <laughs> um, so do you mean sort of both in terms of whether whether or not to use the category and then also whether or not to, is it a two-part question in terms of like whether or not to keep connecting to a potential category as well as when and how to sort of discuss biography or personal circumstance? Yeah. I mean, is it, is it, is it useful? Is it going to remain useful in some contexts to say, you know, this group of people is making art that deserves to, have a place in museums, but they did not go to art school and they did not have the kind of formal training that other artists exhibited in museums have. Is that going to remain a useful uh, lens through which to look at certain artists and also write, you know, it, it, in a related way, um, when aspects of an artist's biography are extraordinary in terms of what they've been able to achieve in, in their art production? You know, how do we, how, how can we be thoughtful about that? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, while we're still in a position that the art world and, you know, I know contemporary art curators and writers that don't know a lot about these artists and also certainly kind of know it's a thing, self-taught artists or outsider artists, but I know we're not really using that term, like what's the history. So I think while people are are still learning and open-minded to learning that, you know, presenting artists that may not have that much in common, but we know that more people need to know about their work, you know, um, can put it out there, um, that it is still useful, you know? I mean, that's certainly what I'm hoping to do with nonconformers, you know, is I am trying to discuss the problems of the genre or of the categories, you know, where I stand in it, but also saying, but look, you know, if we're still learning about this and we're still settling on what works and what doesn't, you know, here are some really incredible artists. Um, and here's also a history of where we got to today and um, also how we can look at more historical artists within that history and then open that up to 
a larger art history, you know, I think it's, I think it is definitely still useful. Um, and in terms of, I guess, sort of recognizing and mentioning biography or personal circumstance, I think it kind of treads that same line where as long as, you know, you're not, as long as the intent and the statement isn't, you know, the artwork or the artist is interesting because of biography, you know, because they went through this or they suffer from this. Um, but in the other hand, some biographical details or looking into personal circumstance provides a deeper understanding of the artwork and it's done in a respectful manner. I also think that's quite important. And I think that that is also relevant in, you know, the larger, you know, art world as well. And then also I think, you know, especially historically, you know, when we are looking at the history of William Edmondson or say Aloise Corbaz, who was institutionalized in Switzerland, I think for historic artists to understand, you know, what their contemporaneous situation was, um, can also kind of help kind of redefine or hopefully dismantle the genre for the future. Right. Well, thank you for not only the book, but the work that you are doing in this area and will continue to do. Thank you for making the time to talk to me today about it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The book, again, is Nonconformers, A New History of Self-Taught Artists by Lisa Slominski. It is as beautiful as it is timely, and it can be purchased now wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books. <laughs>